Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Happy Father's Day. Um, just as we get started here, I wanted to make a, a comment about fathers this morning. A few weeks ago, I got to be at a gathering of pastors, and one of the activities that we did uh, was go around the room, and uh, both men and women shared their experience of who got them to the meeting. Like, how did you end up here? Who are the people in your life that got you to this place, to be a pastor, to sit in this um, pastor's, you know, community and talk through all the challenges, all of the joys of what it meant to be in ministry. And as we went down the line, each and every one of them had somebody in their life that had spoken a word to them, who had encouraged them, who had um, cared for them through difficult seasons of their life. And every week here, we pray the Lord's Prayer, right? That just says, Our Father. And as been said, regardless of how our experience of our earthly father uh, was, that we each Sunday we gather together to remember that we're part of the family of God. That together, as we say, our father, we're declaring something that goes beyond even our nuclear families and goes towards heaven and just says uh, that in this space, in the church here, that, that there is a, a village of loving, caring disciples that are looking to follow after Jesus, that if we can mobilize it and find it within ourselves um, to step out, to care for one another, and to take care of one another, then we get to experience what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, pray to your Father in heaven, be a part of the family of God, make God your father and watch how the community of God can raise one another and care for one another. And so just pray that as you're thinking through Father's Day, hopefully you're celebrating um, the father in your life that you love and um, that's always a joy. And also as you're processing maybe loss or difficulty around your father that just know that um, that's a part of the human story. It's totally understandable. We grieve with you wherever uh, things need to be grieved, and we're, we're present to that reality as well here. So go to God with whatever uh, e emotional experience you may have during Father's Day. With that, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this time that we get to have together to explore your word, to come to experience you here present among us. Uh, would you speak a word that only you can speak? Lord, we entrust to you that you know what we need. Uh, you know the desires of our heart. And so we just pray that uh, you would come. Come be with us. Teach us through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in John. We've been going through the gospel of John. And we are now in chapter 6. We only got 10 verses to cover today as we come to the climax of chapter 6 and uh, we've been in a real uh, intense dialogue now for a few weeks in the Gospel of John that's really coming to its final note here uh, in verse 60 through 70. So here are these words. You can follow along on the screens. 
Like I said last week, if you brought a Bible, bonus points, however you want to engage with the scripture, hear these words from John chapter 6, starting at verse 60. They say this, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this, time, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is the devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who thought, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Okay, so a couple introductory ideas and we're going to dive into uh, the, the content of the verses we just read. So one introductory idea just to get us going on this, this last section here in the Gospel of John. Maybe you have your outline. I want you to draw your attention to the picture, or there should be a picture coming up on the screen here. Why, why do I have this picture of scary animals? Uh, maybe, maybe you uh, know what this picture is of. These are the creatures that are uh, found on maps from medieval times. When explorers first began, they you know, would chart out as best they could uh, what they thought were the dangers that were out on the open seas. And you know, they were trying to mark out this newfound land and they were doing the best they could to describe what it would be like to go on these journeys. And isn't it interesting, the creativity that they came up with, with what these creatures would look like that you may encounter out in the, you know, as you explore the newfound world. But I find that what's interesting about this, as we just turn to an analogy here about thinking about the truth, is that uncharted areas of our lives often manifest in really scary things. Like uninvestigated, unknown things, our mind has this really amazing capacity to creatively come up with something really, really scary, doesn't it? When we don't actually investigate and explore something and it's still left sort of unchecked and unknown, all of a sudden there's a lot of scary creatures. And the reality is, as we've explored, we know a little bit more that there are actually some scary creatures out there in the sea, but they look nothing like this, right? And, and so the mind, um, left unchecked, has this ability to sort of create even bigger, scarier things out there 
than we would actually observe in reality, right? And this, this story is really about getting to the core truth of who Jesus is and what it took to get to the core truth of the identity of Jesus, which is the main point of the gospel of John. Like within this big conflict, this big back and forth between uh, these disciples that were maybe going to follow Jesus or maybe not, had experienced a great miracle at his hand, but are really checking in on what Jesus is about, who he is. And as they hear the answers to their questions about the identity of Jesus, are reacting by probably slowly this big crowd just thinning out. And people are walking away from the truth and reality of who Jesus is. And so as we talk about truth, just want to offer three different ideas that I think can help us as we look at the scriptures to discover the truth. And before I get into the first one, I just want to make the case for why this is so important. So Alistair McIntyre writes this in his book, After Virtue. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? And I wonder if you share the experience with me of observing the challenge of getting myself and others to really think hard about what story am I living in? What is the true story that I inhabit and others inhabit? And am I investigating? Am I asking questions? Am I thinking through the stories that are being offered to me and how they impact me, whether I'm conscious of them or unconscious of them. And yet, we can't make, McIntyre's argument here is that we're really making decisions out of those stories. So it's important for us to investigate like these maps were investigated. What is the reality of the stories that I'm being offered? Are they as scary as I'm being told? Have they been explored and understood in the way that I'm being told? And so one of the ways we know for sure that the Bible invites us time and time again uh, to grow in our ability to understand the truth is simply by asking questions. The Bible is full of incredible questions. And Jesus honors the questions, even though these questions are fairly combative that we've been exploring, Jesus, with every question, is revealing more truth about who he is. So let's just look at the questions as it help us get into the context of our passage that have been asked up to this point by these potential disciples of Jesus who've formed a great crowd and as a crowd are asking Jesus these questions. In verse uh, 25 of chapter 6, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, so Jesus has just walked on water, and they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? They were like super confused. How did you end up here? We just saw you on the other side of the lake. Just a logistical question. 
Then they asked him, what must we do uh, to do the works God requires? Okay, so that's a question that a lot of us bring, right? Like, Jesus, tell me the thing I got to do. Wouldn't it be so nice if it was like Jesus just laid it out? Like, what is it that I got to do? That's really what I need to know here at church, right? What is it that I got to do? What does God require of me? And we always see that it's not as simple the explanations that Jesus gives, right? Because they want to do something. And Jesus actually says, this is about your belief. This is actually about receiving. This is about you beginning to believe in the present Messiah who's in your midst, who you can't see or acknowledge. So in verse 30, it says, So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? So now this is more accusatory. We're seeing the heat going up a little bit, and they're saying, What are you going to do to prove to us what you just said? That you're basically claiming that you're one with God. And how are you going to prove it to us that you are one with God? Well, if you remember in the story, they had already, this is a group that was there at the feeding of the 5,000. So they already experienced a miracle, but they're asking for another miracle. Give us another sign. Prove it to us who you are, right? So there's another question in the midst. Now the heat gets really dialed up. They said, it is, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Okay, so now the question is almost like, this is a question for the crowd itself. Like, are we going to decide as a crowd this is somebody we know, and he is saying something we just simply cannot accept. And so it's like this declaration of, isn't this guy we, we knew from our hometown? How could he possibly say the things that he's saying? Right? And we see their, their posture really change as Jesus gives them these answers. And then finally, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? just simply confused, just simply now fundamentally misunderstanding. And it was the first time this idea of Jesus offering his body was introduced to them. So it was a confusing concept for them, even though Jesus is trying his hardest to explain it, to let them know what the truth of who he is is. And it's really a a tough spot, I think, because it's kind of like Jesus can't help but tell the truth. But this group is perceiving it as not what's expected, kind of strange, right? And so if they're not open to the unexpected and the strange, they're never going to really be able to transition. But if you think about it, it's like if, if, if God was in flesh and blood, wouldn't you expect to be surprised? Wouldn't you expect that the truth would strike you as a little bit different than you might have assumed it would? And so the posture that they have of certitude is really getting in their way of understanding who Jesus is. And then, and then I think, so the, so the first way we find truth, I think we know this, right, is 
simply to investigate, to ask the big questions about your life, to ask, who am I? Why was I made? What story am I living in? What is the truth given all of the stories that are out there? And how we do that is we keep learning and growing through asking questions. Jesus honors our questions in prayer. Bring your questions to Jesus. The second is to be weird, right? And I want to point to um, verse 60 here. It says this, on hearing Jesus' answer to their questions, many of his disciples, right? So they're getting this title of disciples, but then they say this, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And so the crowd is turning on Jesus. Can you imagine the emotions? Like one of the things I'd love to see is what are the emotions that Jesus is having? Like if, if I could just get a note, like how he experienced this, because he He's coming with such strength to tell the truth. But as we see as the crowd dissipates and he asks Peter this question, are you, are you going to leave as well? There is this sadness, this, this brokenheartedness over the fact that Jesus is telling them the truth that will save them. And they're announcing questions like this. Like, this is too hard. Who could possibly accept it? And yet we're going to get an answer to who could possibly accept it at the end of our scripture for today. But before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about hard teaching, right? And what it means to encounter truth in the midst of a culture that maybe would describe Christianity as a hard teaching. One of the things that I think helps us to really get to the truth is to see how a crowd of people all together are reacting negatively right, to Jesus. Like, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people here, and they're turning. Soren Kierkegaard has this amazing, uh, uh, just thinking around the meaning of a crowd and what it can do to people if it's not really, uh, like, thought through. What does it mean to join a big crowd of people in regards to the truth? And he writes this. He says, the crowd is untruth. Therefore, was Christ crucified because although he addressed himself to all, he would have no dealings with the crowd, because he would not permit the crowd to aid him in any way, because in this regard, he repelled people absolutely, would not found a party, did not permit balloting, but would be what he is, the truth, which relates itself to the individual. Right, so Jesus didn't run for office. He was not dictated by being popular or unpopular. What he's saying is not controlled by if it was going to please the crowd or not. What he was saying was the thing that needed to be said to save the world. And sometimes that was unpopular. And in this situation, it was unpopular. He told them the truth, and they walked away. And I just think for anybody who's coming to church, one of the things we need to normalize as we look at this story is that if you choose to follow Jesus in 2023, people might think you're weird, right? They, they just might not understand why you would be a person who goes to church. 
why you're a person who says they have committed to following Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. Like, they might see you as old-fashioned. They might see you as somebody who's sort of strange. Like these Jews saw Jesus' teaching as strange. Like, what do you mean you gather together to eat bread and drink some grape juice that you say is the body and blood of Jesus? That's strange, right? Until you've really encountered God and understood the nature of who God is and what he is about, can we blame people for thinking this is odd? And I'm sure if uh, you have traveled in the world at all, you've had encounters like this. As a pastor, I've gotten some of the strangest looks I could possibly have ever experienced from hairdressers and people on the plane. Wherever it gets down to, what do you do for a living? And then everybody looks at me like, wait, what? And for some people, they get really excited, and other people, they get really quiet. And so there's always this choice to be made. Well, am I going to be comfortable looking weird in this situation? And what's, what is at stake for all of us in that? It's a social acceptance that's at stake. Like, if we're willing to say, I am a follower of Jesus, if I'm willing to say, I am a pastor of a church, then one of the things I then am afraid of is that this person is not going to understand, they're going to think I'm weird, and they're not going to accept me, and now we can't be friends. And yet, what's at stake is also the truth of what I've committed myself to and what I believe deep down in my heart what have I experienced and known to be true, what I feel is something so important for the world to know and come to know. And so it's important for us, especially as the church culture shifts, especially in Los Angeles, for us as a group of people together to just kind of get together and say, you know what, it's okay to look weird. Like what would happen if you started to look a little weird? You know, because the world's going one way and looking weird is probably not that bad, right? Looking weird to the world is probably not all that bad. One other point, just to, to kind of bring us into the context of this that I think makes sense, just to articulate some of this experience would be the story of secularism, this is Mark Sayers, is a story which says that as the world moves away from faith and belief in God, that the world will inevitably become a better place. Now, just a couple notes here. One is that, that you know, sometimes Christians get uh, people upset because they're being mean. And if Christians are being mean to the outside world, and then they have mean responses to them, then that's not persecution, right? That is something else. And so we have to be careful about how we interpret when it means to look weird. Sometimes we can get it confused, like, well, we're being mean, and they're then responding negatively, therefore I'm persecuted. But instead, what we need to see here is that Jesus is not being mean. He is telling the truth. He's honoring their questions. 
He's giving them uh, the answers to the questions that they may have, and it just simply is not connecting. And so people are walking away. And secularism is a cultural narrative that is moving with strength in our world. Whether it is uh, fully articulated or not, in so many ways it's a momentum that is in our culture. And so it is important for us to name that, that a hundred years ago, this may have not been the case. But now we are experiencing a new time and so we have to come to God with this new season and say, you know what, as secularism is on the rise, what does that mean for what kind of Christian that I want to be in this type of environment, in this situation, this, this day and age? Am I willing to continue to re-up on my core commitments to God even if it's less popular than it used to be? And I, I think that, that there's something really beautiful as we're going through this story that we see about the people that have chosen to stay when other people are walking away. Like there's a gift that is given to the people that are willing to stay here that is so profound. These disciples, as everybody, as the the crowd walks away, Jesus turns to these 12 and he asks them, In verse 67, do you want to leave too? And Jesus uh, and Simon answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. Where else can we go? See, this is the first articulation of one of the disciples of who Jesus truly is. Finally, in the story, after all we've been through, Peter, in a moment of true insight given by God, is able to articulate Jesus as Messiah. And so there's all of these questions that are being asked and all of this back and forth, and people are leaving, but then here's Peter over to the side, if you could just think about him, observing and benefiting from this conversation that's happening, and he's watching it, and he's really truly listening in, and really wants to know what the truth is, and really wants to understand who he's with. And so these questions are benefiting the disciples, those 12 who've chosen to stay, and they get to see it. They get to see it first for the whole world because they weren't going to give up even when things got weird, even when the teachings got hard and strange, that they were staying. They were going to understand it. They were going to commit themselves to the truth. And what this does in Peter's story is so profound. And it, it, it really culminates in his teachings to the church later on. Like, listen to what 1 Peter 2.4 says. Like, if you could just flash forward from this moment of insight to Peter, to him now teaching the church what he had learned. It says this, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, 
you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. It's like this invitation. Would you follow in this lineage of those who are seeking after the truth that could that could become the very stones and pillars of the church that could be so strong by being willing to stay and commit themselves to Jesus, that they would become the house of God that would change history. This is the invitation that's being given. And then uh, another way to articulate this, I love this, Neil Cole says, God never downloads the whole plan at once. Okay, so we, we always journey with some questions at hand. You have to discover it along the way. This is because the greater goal is not that we accomplish something, but that we grow more intimate with our Lord. Those who listen well to God will find that God listens well to them, and they will accomplish a lot more. So the skill here that's being cultivated is this ability to hear and understand who God is on the journey of life. In the Benedictine uh, monastic order, there are four core commitments. People usually could name three if they're familiar with this movement, but they miss the last one. But I think it's an, it, it would be, if you were willing to make it, a radically different commitment than how our culture uh, is making decisions. The, the four are poverty, chastity, chastity, obedience, and stability. The last one is stability. And the reason why stability is in there is because even monks would say, this monastery is not for me. I don't like the people in this monastery. I don't like the decisions being made in this monastery. I don't like this monastery, I need to get to the next better monastery, right? And so this guy named Benedict came along and he said, one of our commitments is that we're not going to think the grass is greener somewhere else. That we're going to commit ourselves to staying in one place. And this is what writers have uh, articulated. This, Paul Wilkes says this about this commitment. It was a commitment to trust in God's goodness that he was indeed there in that very place and that holiness, happiness, and human fulfillment were to be found not tomorrow over the hill, but here today. So I wonder what it would mean for you to make a vow of stability to your community, to just simply say, there is no grass is always greener somewhere else. No big change every, uh, every time something is hard or difficult or uh, affects you or you don't like something. But what does it mean to be in true community where you work things out with the people around you, with your family, with the church family? To simply say, I'm committed to stay. And when I've done that in my life, one of the things that I've discovered is that there was a truth that if I had walked away, that I would have not learned. There was something about uh, how God wanted to grow me in a conflict that if I bailed out on, I was going to have to learn again 
and again and again and again until I was able to learn it, right? And that's what stability can give us. Um, just a final I- idea here. I was in my doctoral program, I was sitting with one of my professors and he was asking me things about my story and my seminary journey came up and I was just telling him one of my heartbreaks was that of all of the people that I went to seminary with, there was only about one or two that I knew that were in some kind of pastoral ministry and many of them had walked away from their faith, from being in long-term ministry, and how heartbreaking it was to watch them to walk away because it was difficult, because of their story, because they weren't really there for the right reasons, whatever it was. And as I was telling him that, and then saying, you know, like what it takes to stay is just this radical commitment to hold on to the hem of Jesus' garment wherever it may take you or lead you. And he said back to me, he said to me, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like Peter, who's saying, where else can we go? Only you have the words to eternal life. And so my invitation to you is to investigate this truth. Is what Peter's saying true? Does it speak to the core of who you are? And are you willing to stay to find out just how true it is? I'm going to pray a famous prayer from Sir Francis Drake about discipleship um, over us as we conclude this time of the sermon together. Uh, So would you receive this prayer now? Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sail too close to the shore, disturb us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess, we have, with abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having, having fallen in love with life, We have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our effort to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your majesty, where where losing sight of the land, we shall find the stars, And we ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Amen.